Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Our guest in this program is Phil Baldwin of Ukiah, California, a Peace and Freedom Party candidate for the United States House of Representatives in 1992. He ran in the 1st Congressional District in Northwest California. Phil Baldwin and I spoke about the differences between the Peace and Freedom Party and the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Of particular interest in this discussion are the differences between Mr. Baldwin and the final victor in the 1992 election, former Democrat Dan Hamburg. This program was originally broadcast in December of 1991 when it was called Government, Politics, and Ideas. Phil, welcome to Government, Politics, and Ideas. Thanks for having me. Phil, for openers, what's the difference between the Democrats, Republicans, and Peace and Freedom Party? To me, the only difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is that uh, corporate corporate lawyers run the Democratic Party and corporate bosses run the Republican Party. The Peace and Freedom Party has, for the last 30 years, represented an alternative to the policy of these two incumbent parties that have been running Congress and running the nation uh, for the last uh, 150 years. And basically what's happening to our economy right now is that people are suffering. They are suffering tremendously. And the people in charge in Washington, D.C. are either unaware of this fact or they don't care about this fact. And what you have is, is two parties acting as one when it comes to issues of taxation, the economy, and our national financial structure. These two parties basically are acting as one party, and it does not represent the working people of this nation. Well, Dan Hamburg, who is the candidate uh, for Congress, uh, who you may be running against in the general election next November, is a registered Democrat. And he felt that it's more important to be a Democrat than it is to be a peace and freedom candidate, yet his ideas sound like they may be similar to yours. Can you tell us um, how yours are different from his? I'm sure that Dan Hamburg and myself share a, a number of ideas and that we, uh, I know he cares very strongly about the future of this country. But as I pointed out in the debate we had over in Fort Bragg on October 11th, is that the Democratic Party has disappointed progressives and social democrats over and over again. It was the Democratic Party that promised peace in the early 60s and gave us war in Vietnam. It was the Democratic Party that uh, recently gave itself a, a uh, pay raise in Congress that raised their, their salaries from 96000 to 126000 and put them in the richest 1% of all the people. It was also the Democratic Party that vigorously applauded the invasion of Panama, which was uh, an atrocity on the people of Panama and ended up achieving nothing other than the incarceration of one single drug dealer. And it was a Democratic Party that worked very, very closely with Ronald Reagan during the 1980s to, to create two new tax laws that basically enriched uh, the already wealthy at the expense of the rest of us. Well, what will you do that's different from other members of Congress if you're elected? If I'm elected, the system will be shocked tremendously. The, the Democratic and Republican parties will have to take notice. They will begin to worry about the uh, creation of third parties. and. Uh, the shock value of my election will actually increase the chances of, of, of this nation 
having a truly just and complete health care system, a national health care insurance plan that covers every single American will, will be one of the values of my election. Well, what will you do as a member of Congress that would be different from what uh, either Frank Riggs has done or Dan Hamburg proposes to do? Well, one thing, I will not be beholden to wealthy donors. Basically, the Democrats and Republicans are both going to try to raise between $200,000 and three-quarters of a million dollars for this race. And to do that, they have to spend the majority of their time with wealthy lawyers and wealthy bosses of corporations to raise that kind of money. This means they cannot speak out on issues that are vital. They cannot challenge the, the corporate power structure in this nation, which I will do over and over again, is, is speak out and work with other members of Congress, especially uh, Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who is the only third-party uh, member of Congress and was the only white member of Congress to continue to challenge the war after that, the bombing started in uh, Kuwait and Iraq. Uh, we will speak out. We will work co closely with Public Citizen, Ralph Nader's group in Washington, D.C., and work to challenge the structure that has dominated our country for the last 40 and 50 years. What structure are you seeking to establish? I don't know that I'm uh, seeking to establish any structure, except we need the country that our children in schools uh, have learned uh, is that we stand for liberty and justice for all. For the last 50 years, these two incumbent parties in Washington have uh, uh, done a relatively decent job of ensuring liberty, a li liberty especially for the, uh, the people who are well off. But they seem to have forgotten that the country also is supposed to stand for justice. And that's what I want to fight for, is the idea that we can have liberty and justice in this country. Because there's a lot of people who don't believe that those two concepts go together. Can you give us some examples of where liberty and or justice now are being denied the citizens of the United States that uh, in your interpretation would be uh, different or handled in a different manner if you're elected? One area where there is very little justice is in our health care system today. If you can succeed, if you're lucky enough, wealthy enough, or even poor enough to squeeze through this tiny door that admits you into our health care system, we have one of the finest health care systems in the world. There's technology everywhere if you can get in the door. But 30, 33 million Americans cannot get in that tiny door, and another 50 or 60 million Americans are underinsured and, and are not completely covered for uh, routine uh, medical uh, problems. So that's one area where justice does not exist in our country. Another area where it does not exist is in the area of taxation where we've had, since Carter came into power in the 1970s, we've had a, a Congress and an administration, either Democrat or Republican, working very closely together to make sure that the, that the tax, taxes paid by the rich are uh, basically limited and or reduced. And what we've had is during the 1980s, the rich are paying 20% less than they did uh, in the 1970s, and I think that's uh, an atrocity. Do you have any plans or programs to uh, restructure um, public assistance to people who are either unable to work or are unemployable? The welfare system is a joke, and it needs to be transformed. I'm not, I do not have details of a major uh, 
change in the welfare system. However, we are looking at the, the concept of a guaranteed annual wage and or a negative income tax structure that does not discourage people on welfare from seeking employment. How about a workfare system where people who receive public benefits are obliged to do something for the community? Workfare, uh, you know, b basically before the Civil War there was a form of workfare and basically for and the slaves during that period worked for what might be called a minimum wage. They received enough to live on. They received some shelter and some clothing to live on. And their workfare did not, their, the work they did did not allow them to improve their lot. Now, I, I see some similarities bet between uh, uh, what uh, some people today are saying is in order to stay at the very bottom of the ladder, to remain in gross poverty, you must uh, work. What we need is a system that encourages people to go to work to improve their lot, the current welfare system, and the workfare that I have seen proposed does not do that. Well, then that would bring us to education and changing the uh, access to education in the educational systems in California and on a nationwide basis. Uh, you mentioned before we went on the air that you had some thoughts about those. Uh, Phil, what are they? During the last 20 years, I have taught uh, approximately 14 or 15 of those years in a number of different communities, from big cities to now I teach in one of the smallest uh, high schools in the nation, possibly. And what I see is a system in failure. And I also see administrators and the teachers unions failing to admit that the system is not working. In test after test after test in comparisons with all the other industrialized nations of the world, our, stu our students do uh, the poorest. In virtually every exam that's been given on a, every standardized exam, our students fail in relation to the Western Europeans and Korea and Japan. And all the ideas that I see being talked about in the nation today and by Bill Honig, Wilson, uh, George Bush do not really deal with the problem that I think we need to, we need to deal with. What is that problem? I believe we are currently graduating between 25% and 40% illiterates, people who receive high school diplomas without being able to structure a, a, a sensible paragraph, without being able to read an editorial in the, lo in the local paper and relate what they read in that in that editorial in writing. And so, and you see this everywhere. You see it in our television programming. You see it in the fact that only 50% of our people vote. You see it in declining uh, circulation per capita for our, our newspapers. And what <clears throat> I think really needs to be done now is that we have to forget this idea that, that the Democrats and the teachers unions and the, and the administrators of the schools have said repeatedly for the last 30 years is we need more money for our school system. The Republicans, on the other hand, are basically uh, saying we need to maintain really strict basic standards and, and teach the three R's. What I think needs to be done is we need to maintain the existing level of funding for our secondary schools. And when any new money becomes available for education, now that's going to be difficult enough to find any new money for education. When that money does become available, all of it. All the new money needs to go into Head Start and to primary schools, kindergarten through fourth grade, because it's only at that level, in my opinion, that we could uh, 
actually make a significant difference in the life of a child who comes from a home where the TV's on 8 to 10 hours to 12 hours a day, where there are no books in the house, where there may be an abusive situation, where there may be misuse uh, and abuse of alcohol and other drugs. And it's only at the early childhood level that we can significantly make a difference in the, in the lives of children. One of the uh, concepts that uh, has been mentioned on this program when we've been discussing education is the idea of taking into the academic classroom the requirements that the sports coaches have on the sports fields. They require that the kids master the ability to play football or play basketball before they can be on the first string. In the academic classrooms, the kids are given a list of uh, words to learn or things to accomplish, and often they're passed on to the next grade, whether they accomplish them or whether they master them. Do you see a need for a change in that area? What we are getting from the people who uh, sit in the ivory tower in Sacramento and Washington, often uh, these people who are now consultants working for the State Department of Education or the National Department of Education are teachers who hated teaching and so they got out of the classroom as, as quickly as possible or they're college professors who've never dealt on the front lines with uh, primary or secondary school children and what we're getting from them is a conflicting idea is is to maintain strict high standards and to move towards mastery of learning at the same time they're telling us never damage a single psyche in the classroom uh, this whole idea that we need schools where everyone always feels very good those two ideas of maintaining maintaining strict standards and or mastery of learning and never never uh, uh, saying anything negative to a kid about what, what they have accomplished or have not accomplished, I really have a difficult time understanding how those two ideas worked hand in hand. You're listening to Government Politics and Ideas. This is Barry Vogel. Our guest this evening is Phil Baldwin, who is a candidate for Congress from the Peace and Freedom Party. Phil, one of the other issues of trying to uh, develop uh, students uh, who can learn uh, in a, let's say, better way, for want of a better word, is parental involvement. And on the sports fields and in the uh, extracurricular activities, you see the parents out uh, cheering the kids along at the games or uh, taking them to games and really helping them, but you don't see them that much in the classroom. Do you feel that makes a difference? It does make a difference. Uh, in, since I've been teaching for 15 years during the last 20 years, uh, the children who I deal with who come from homes where the TV gets turned off, where the parents read with the kids and ask them about their assignments and their homework, those kids almost invariably do pass and or do quite well and become literate active citizens in our community. And what I, what I don't see the public school system now doing is making a significant difference in, in children's lives. In other words, the the children that come from homes that care, really care about their kids' educations, they perform, they do well, and they succeed and, and become literate citizens. And I don't see the public school system making a difference uh, generally in the lives of those who, who don't come from those kinds of homes. And yes, we need uh, a lot more parental involvement. I do not know how the government today could uh, mandate that or uh, significantly increase it right now, and I'm certainly open to any suggestions that would. Well, when you say the government, you mean the uh, Congress of the United States as well as the local school districts? Well, I, 
the local school districts are a local level of government, yeah, and I, I'm not sure how uh, parents could be expected, uh, considering their current economic struggle to uh, uh, put food on the table, pay the rent or the mortgage, how they would have time to get into the classroom. Uh, but we do need parents turning off the TV and sitting down and reading with their children and listening to their uh, children read and basically modeling the, the, the behavior and the idea that reading is very, very valuable. In the election for Congress from the 1st District um, in November of 1990, uh, Darlene Comengore appears to have played a very significant role in the election of Frank Riggs by drawing so many of the people who uh, didn't want to vote for Bosco as well as wanting to vote for her. What role do you see your candidacy as a, the Peace and Freedom candidate this year having on um, uh, an election that is attempting to challenge Riggs and with yourself and whoever the Democratic candidate may be? It's very unusual in this in our entire nation for there to be a truly cont contested congressional race. I think this will be, and I intend to make it a three-person race. That's why I've entered, is this will be a three-person race. And yes, we're going to raise issues uh, that the two parties will not or cannot raise. What, what are those issues? We're going to talk specifically about uh, the need for the rich to finally pay their fair share of taxes. At what point of income uh, would a person under your clarification be rich? <laughs> Those people, uh, basically, the, the wealthiest 1% of the people are now earning between 120 and 130, $140,000. That's the wealthiest 1%. And it's very easy for candidates to say we're going to tax the wealthiest 1% more. I think we need to tax probably the, the, the wealthiest 15% more. And an individual, now that I'm talking about an individual who earns more than $75,000, uh, can pay a greater share, share. They can give um, a little bit more to this country because our country is in, is in crisis right now. How much uh, should a person who earns $75,000 pay in taxes? I think a person who earns $75,000 could maintain a very uh, beautiful lifestyle, uh, a lifestyle superior to 70% of the people by paying uh, a, a fairer share, and that fairer share could be 32 or 33 percent. And below that, do you feel that there should be a level at which um, a wage earner should pay no taxes because of the uh, amount of their wages? Yes, and I don't know uh, currently what that cutoff is or should be, but absolutely. Moving along, what other programs or issues would you are you going to raise in the election? I want to talk at when I, when I get the opportunity at every stop in, in Northern California about the epidemic of violence and rudeness that has, is sweeping our nation today. Uh, I see it in the classroom. I see it in the, on the TV, in athletic contests. And we see it in the statistics about violence in this country. The, the violent crime rate is up. And the, the violent crime rate against women is increasing at a far faster rate than the, than the general crime rate. And I want to talk repeatedly about this, the problem that we have in our culture today uh, of a general rudeness 
where we have a high regard for the bully, uh, where machismo is praised, and where women are being abused and battered and raped at alarming rates. And I'm going to talk about that at, at every chance I get. What role should Congress take in attempting to solve those problems and, and uh, change those directions? I'd like to see Congress do a number of things. One is, a, is forcing colleges to report uh, all sexual crimes. Often when a case goes to court uh, or in the system, if the person is not found guilty of rape, but is found guilty of assault or battery, that does not get reported in a college's uh, statistics that go out to parents who are trying to help the, the, the child decide uh, the, or the student decide where they're going to go to college. That's one thing we can do. Funding for uh, battered women shelters and uh, shelters for women who uh, are victims of, uh, of violence needs to be expanded. Every county must have uh, a shelter for women who have been uh, battered and or raped. We also need a public service campaign. I really do believe that uh, the role models in our society, none of whom are politicians, by the way, the role models are athletes, Hollywood stars, and singers primarily for the, for the youth. And what I'd like to see is a very serious public service uh, campaign using these role models from MTV, from Hollywood, and from sports, letting young people know especially young men, that rudeness is not cool, that hurting women is not cool, and that you can be a, 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 a neat human being and a popular human being without, uh, by treating women with respect, by treating all human beings with respect in a courteous, civil way. Congressionally mandated, uh, in other words, a public service program that would be congressionally mandated uh, involving the people who you've described. Right. I can see uh, Tom Cruise and Michael Jordan doing ads that are sophisticated. Propaganda now uh, coming out of uh, Hollywood is very, very sophisticated. Uh, advertising firms are now borrowing ideas from MTV. And I can, I can see a public service campaign aimed at the, at, uh, the people who uh, let's say the under 30 uh, generation, uh, saying r over and over again that we need to treat each other with respect and that when a woman says no, she means no. Men need to, uh, real men, as opposed to baboons and dogs, respond when a woman says stop, when a woman says no, and, and we need to, I'm going to mention that at every stop again, is that men, real men respect women and they know that no means no and stop means stop. Phil, you're teaching, uh, is it history at Potter Valley High School right now? I teach uh, history and Spanish at Potter Valley High School, yes. Will you be taking a leave of absence during the campaign to uh, travel up and down the North Coast, the 1st Congressional District? Well, uh, Possibly. It'll depend on the, the, what, what the school board says. It's possible that I would be able to take a, a little bit of time off. It's, it's difficult. It's extremely difficult running a campaign when you're working full-time, and I'm not sure that other candidates are working full-time as I am. What is some of uh, your other experience and background in education and experience in government that qualifies you to be the congressman from this district? 
I've taught at the secondary level in a number of different localities in my old hometown of Bakersfield, in Santa Cruz, Kalinga, and now Potter Valley. I've also um, served on a kindergarten through eighth grade school district school board. I was elected to that in the Live Oak area of Santa Cruz County. I served uh, several years on the Santa Cruz uh, Board of Supervisors from 1977 through uh, uh, the end of 78, being rudely interrupted in that uh, experience. And I have pounded the pavement for a number of candidates over the years, and I've talked to people, I've talked to working people, and the, what I've learned in all those experiences is that the people are getting more and more pissed off at uh, uh, government and at politics because they have learned that once those people get to Washington, they represent the rich. They do not represent the working people of the United States of America. Are there other announced candidates for the Peace and Freedom Congressional primary next June, or will you be the only person on the ballot? I don't have the faintest idea. Sometimes the media makes it difficult uh, for us to find out who has announced and who hasn't. Uh, uh, certain media have decided not to recognize my campaign at this point in time. I'm, I'm not sure that other people are, are, are running right now or not. Is Darlene Comingore running? Do you know? The last time I talked to Darlene, she had not made up her mind. We had had several excellent conversations, and I'm not sure. I've told Darlene that if she runs, it will be valuable and good for the party. Uh, any party that uh, has anything to offer is going to have contested primaries. What sort of campaign structure have you been able to establish for yourself? Well, the campaign at this time is based primarily in Mendocino County. We have uh, Democrats, Greens, and Peace and Freedom Party working on the campaign. In Humboldt County, uh, the Peace and Freedom Party is working on a coalition with the, the Green Party up there, and it's been very active in support of my candidacy. And we are also trying to convince young young voters, first-time voters, angry voters, people who've given up on the system who are voter dropouts, that this campaign is going to not only address the issues that other candidates don't, don't address, but it's also going to be by far the most fun campaign. If people want to get involved or ask uh, further questions of you or make donations, how can they do that? If anyone would like to help my campaign or join in, in this campaign that uh, stresses progressive social democratic issues as well as has an excellent fun time doing it they can write to P.O. Box 74 in Ukiah or phone me my uh, my phone numbers in the phone book well Phil Baldwin candidate for first district congressional seat from the Peace and Freedom Party thank you very much for being with us here on government politics and ideas this time went so rapidly thank you very much Phil Baldwin of Ukiah California was a candidate on the Peace and Freedom Party ticket for the United States House of Representatives from the 1st Congressional District in Northwest California. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious 
at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.